0: Man, amen. There were some great quotes on the screen about worship. Some of my favorites were, uh, What we are worshiping, we are becoming. Another one was, It's only when men worship, begin to worship, that they begin to grow. Worship is where the core of our being is found loving Him and is found, <clears throat> excuse me, lost in Him. Worship is expressing the same delight in God that made David dance. Worship is expressing the same delighting God that made David dance. And top of your notes, there's, a, there's a, another quote, didn't show up on the screen, but it's, worship is a response to a relationship we don't deserve. Worship is a response to a relationship we don't deserve. You see, the choice is not if we are going to worship, right? But rather, who or what will we worship? And Scripture encourages us to worship God. Psalm 95, verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Psalm 96, verse 9 reads, Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. And here's a passage about the worship that Christ would receive one day, written by the the prophet Daniel hundreds of years before He arrived as that little baby. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and all people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And we read in Matthew chapter twenty eight, as they went, as they as they went from um, the empty tomb, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then John gives us a picture in his revelation of what's going on in heaven, even as we speak this morning, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. Being. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for an opportunity to worship you, to come into your presence, Lord, to to bow before the maker of heaven and earth, to, to be in the presence of the one who is and was and always will be, the one who holds oceans and breathes out stars and stretches out his hands and forms galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. Father, we love you, and I just pray that your spirit would just fill us right now and that you would enable us to breathe out anything that would distract us, and God, that we would come into your presence, Lord, expectantly and joyfully, and that we would worship you, we would engage our hearts and our minds right now. Lord, help me to speak what you want me to speak in the way that you want me to speak it, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Woo! It's three days after Christmas. And today is our final conversation in our series, Portraits of Christmas. And I, I, I've had a great time in this series. And so far in this series, we looked at a portrait of destiny, where a middle school age girl and an elderly couple taught us three powerful truths of, about our destiny, And remember, the destiny of of every Jesus follower is to become more and more like Jesus and to be used for his honor and glory. And this elderly couple and teenage girl taught us these three powerful truths. Number one, it's never never too late to be used for God's glory. Uh, Number two, it's never too early to be used for God's glory. And number three, um, when it comes to our destiny, it's about what we do with what Jesus did for us and what Jesus does in us and through us that matters. And last week, we, we spent some time admiring the, the portrait that, that uh, Matthew painted about obedience on the canvas of the life of Joseph, the stepdad of um, God. And, uh, and Joseph, as we looked at this portrait, we saw some things about obedience, that obedience at times can be embarrassing, that it's often inconvenient. Uh, that it, it doesn't always make sense, doesn't add up, does it? That, that it, it, it uh, usually comes with the price tag. There's a cost to obedience. Uh, that, that obedience is always centered on God, on his person, on his plan, on his purposes. And that obedience will always be rewarded. Always be rewarded. Which should motivate us, right? And, and what were those rewards? They were, they were simply this, right? You know, being used by God is a reward for obedience. Knowing God better. The more we obey, the more we know God. Pleasing God is a, is a reward for obedience. Uh, confidence. Confidence in, in where we stand with God. You see, it is, it is difficult for me to be confident in him if I'm living outside of his will and purposes and commands for my life. Get it? Good. I was fast on the good today. And another reward is God's blessings in God's favor. And then on Christmas Eve, and wow, did we have two incredible services or what? Uh, we raised $5,600, you know, you know and, 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 you know, which means that, you know, our goal was 3800 We blew that out of the water you know, um, no pun intended, right? You know, uh, but we know that this time next year, there'll be 38 water purification systems in Liberia that, that that run on a car battery that maybe weekly or daily, I don't know how often, they will be recharged every day, you know, with the money that we raise because we supplied those battery chargers and also other equipment as well. So, that you know, that's exciting, you know, you know, to give the gift of, of life, of, of water. And, and it's, you know, Church planning is involved in this, and so the, you know, they use the natives to help you know, hook up these systems, and then they try to bring them to the Christ, the living water. But on Christmas Eve, we, we talked about the portrait of God, and, and, and we learned you know, three powerful truths, right, you know, that, that, that should really excite us. Uh, the best gifts we could ever have at Christmas time, right, that God keeps his promises, that nothing is impossible with God, and that God's greatest desire is to be with you. God's greatest desire is to be with is to be with you. Would you tell your neighbor that that God's greatest desire is to be with them? Amen. It's true. Crazy. I don't get it either, but it's true. And today, the last Sunday of 2014, we're going to look at the portrait of worship as we meet the wise men found in Matthew chapter 2. Now, these are guys that are probably best known for bringing gifts to Jesus and thus setting in motion the tradition of giving gifts at Christmas. And by the way, even though we sang a song, you know, We Three Kings of Orionar, um, we don't really know how many kings, how many wise men there were. Um, in fact, someone has suggested that there were actually four wise men, but the fourth wise man's gift was fruitcake, and, uh, <laughs> and they didn't let him go on the trip. You know, fruitcake, the gift that keeps regifting for thousands of years. <laughs> hey, did you, did you know that according to a recent survey, 90% of Americans say Christmas is their favorite holiday, but only 20% say they actually enjoy shopping for Christmas, which reminds me of two guys who decided they were going to go sailing while their wives went shopping, and while they're out in the boat, the weather started getting rough, and the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the, that's a different story. But anyhow, they're, they're, they're out there on the boat, and it's, the storm is rough, and they're having a hard time steering the boat, and they actually, it runs aground on a sandbar. So they hop out of the boat. I mean, the waves are smacking them against the boat, right? Rain is pelting their face, and, and one guy looks at the other guys. They're trying to get the boat off the sandbar, and they say, and they say this sure beach Christmas shopping, doesn't it? You know, when I was growing up, I always put Christmas shopping off until the last minute. And I'd race down the aisle of any place that was open back then, grab whatever I could find, throw it on the floor, and wrap it. Now that I'm married, I'm a much better Christmas shopper. I just let my wife, Laurie, do it. And th- 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 here's a chorus at my house. Happened several times this year. I'm wrapping presents. I'm like, God, that's a pretty cool gift they just opened. I go, hey, who got you that? I did, okay? I did. And I will continue that holiday tradition for my family. Amen. Amen. You did good. You done good. You done good. Okay, uh, here's how I I want to unwrap the portrait of worship we find in the original Christmas story. I want to begin by telling the story of the wise men using Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12 as our guide, and then I want to look at some truths that these guys teach us about worship. Okay, let's do this, their story. Matthew begins in chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And like we said a few weeks back, Herod was a very cruel, very crafty, very cunning, very crazy, very paranoid, very sadistic leader. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply troubled when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Okay, right away we discover something interesting Uh, The wise men show up in Jerusalem after the birth of Jesus, which runs contrary to many of our nativity scenes that show the shepherds and the wise men actually carpooling it right to the manger. Now, the shepherds were there the night of Jesus' birth, but the wise men show up after his birth, maybe up to two years after his birth. Okay, so what do we know about these wise men? Well, basically that they were the, the professors and philosophers of their day. Originating from the country we now call Iraq, they're a highly educated men. They were trained in medicine, and history, and religion, and prophecy, and in astronomy. Our modern word "magistrate" is a direct descendant of the word "magi." And since these men thought deeply about life, it certainly makes sense to call them wise men. Matthew also. We also know that these guys were were trained in what we would call astrology. The ancients would study the skies in order to find answers to the great questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And an important fact for us to know about these wise men is that they were highly influential men who served as advisors to kings. And though they were not kings themselves, it would not be far from the truth to say that these guys were king makers so, so what was it that motivated these educated, wealthy, and influential men to make a difficult journey across the de- desert? Well, Matthew answers that. They came to see a baby who was born a king. Now, this is kind of fascinating to me. They knew a baby had been born in Judea, but they didn't know where. Uh, they, they knew he was a king, but they didn't know his name. And so they come to Jerusalem, the capital city, seeking help, which makes perfect sense because they wanted to welcome the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, now, verse 2 adds a detail that has baffled and intrigued biblical scholars and astronomers for 2,000 years. We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. a you know, question, what was this star that rose in the east? Now, there are many theories about it. One astronomer from Rutgers University argues that it was an alignment of, of stars and planets that ancient astrologers would have recognized as something significant. Jupiter was considered the planet of the kings. And a lunar eclipse of Jupiter and the constellation, which was an ancient symbol of Judah, would have excited expectations of a divine birth in the area surrounding Jerusalem. And today, using mathematical equations developed by a guy named Johannes Kepler, and using sophisticated computers, you know, people, astronomers can be able to predict and say, hey, back, this alignment of stars and planets happened during the year of Jesus' birth. Now, there's books about this. You can actually go on YouTube, and and, and you can can search out, you know, Bethlehem star, and there's a guy teaching on this, a a lawyer guy, you know, for about, you know, 70 minutes, and you can check it out. But that's all I'm going to say about the star, for the most part, but, but I think it's awesome, you know, that, that it's another example that, you know, whenever the Bible, you know, is held up to science, it does okay. You know, the Bible can hold its own. You know, the Bible can hold its own up against any truth in the world. You know, you know, the, you know men wither and fade, but the Word of God endures for how long? It endures forever, forever and ever. Now, whatever the bright star was, we know two things about it for certain. Number one, its purpose was to get the attention of the wise men, the students of the sky who often associate the birth of a great ruler with some kind of crazy stuff happening in the heavens. Therefore, the sudden appearance of a bright star would make perfect sense to them and would, in fact, fit what they already believed. Number two, we know without question that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, had his hand in this bright star thing. And listen, if God wanted to get a message to these guys, he could not have picked a better way to do it. When they saw his star as it arose, we saw his star as it arose, and we've come to worship him. Now, I know that most of our images of these wise guys are, you know, them on their camels, hoofing it across the desert, just the three of them. But listen, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, there's no way that these educated, wealthy, and influential men traveled 1,000 miles across the desert by themselves. That's not how important officials traveled in that time. Instead, they would have traveled in a very large caravan. You could actually say a grand caravan, like the ones that have two doors that open. Okay, okay, that was bad. Sorry about that one. Kitty laughter. And so these wise men and their grand caravans, come sweeping into Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance. At a minimum, they would have brought a full military escort and all their servants, so it's probably a group of about 300 people who are riding into town. I mean, no wonder all the news networks were covering the story, and everybody was fighting to get the first exclusive interview with them. And notice that these wise men had no trouble getting an audience with the king. And this fact alone shows us just how important and distinguished they were. Okay, so this huge grand caravan comes driving down the streets of Jerusalem, and Herod, who at the time was more paranoid than ever, wants to know why they are here. And when he finds out that they've come to worship a new king, Matthew says that Herod is what? That he is deeply disturbed, as he always was whenever he felt that his throne was threatened. You see, over the years, you know, real or perceived threats to his throne were always met with his favorite trump card, Murder. But over the years, he committed countless murders to protect his power and his throne. He even he killed a couple of his sons. He killed one of his wives. He, he killed one of his mother-in-laws even. And, and you notice that Matthew says that not only was Herod deeply disturbed, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed by their arrival and by what they were looking for. Now, now why would the whole city be freaking out? I mean, they didn't have a throne to protect. Well, they're, they're freaking out because they know Herod and they're trembling in fear, knowing this guy is going to respond somehow. Somebody's going to die. It's about to get ugly in the city. Herod wants to know where this threat is, so he, Matthew says, called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote, and you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. The question, where's a child to be born? The answer in Bethlehem and Judea. And did you notice that the scribes didn't even have to look it up? I mean, they're not saying, hey, let me, let me Google that, right? Let me, let me, where's, you know, they, they knew the answer. And listen, if we, if we add up with the scribes, Already knew, to what the wise men figured out, we can safely conclude that the signs of Jesus' coming were clear enough for anyone with eyes to see. And here, here's a point. God always speaks loud enough for a willing ear to hear. Always does. Like, okay, something: God is speaking in this room this morning, right? And every willing ear will hear the voice of God. Get it? Good. The wise men heard and did something the religious leaders knew, and they did nothing. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Now, we don't know the answer that he gave, but we do know that a few verses down, when Herod devises his murder plot and, you know, and sends his soldiers to go in and murder to execute baby boys in Bethlehem, it was all the male boys under the age of what? Under the age of two. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, they have no idea what he's up to. After the meeting with the king, the wise men went their way, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went Ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Okay, apparently, as the Magi set out from Bethlehem, which was only five miles south of Jerusalem, the star they saw in the east suddenly reappears. And verse 9 is very specific it says the star went on before them until it came and stood over the very home where Jesus, who was now a toddler, lived. The star went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Now, that doesn't sound like a completely natural or random star, does it? Instead, it sounds like something miraculous. It sounds like a miraculous star created by God to lead the wise man to the exact location they needed to be. And listen, you don't need a GPS, right, if God's going to give you a star to guide you. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. The Greek literally reads this way. I love it. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. I mean, when you're rejoicing exceedingly with great, and that's the word mega, mega joy, that's some serious joy. I mean, you you could even say these guys were experiencing significant pumpification. And for those of you who may have have forgot about that word, never heard of that word, Max says it's from the Malone English Dictionary. Pumpification, the act of becoming so stoked, so fired up and excited that you want to jump up and shout as if you have won the lottery or your team won the Super Bowl. And he left Go Patriots out of definition. Shame on you. Shame on you for doing that. Pumpification. Now, why are they so pumpified? Why were they so joyful? Because now they know that their search had not been in vain. And the really cool thing to me is, you know, they still haven't even seen the baby yet, right? The toddler yet. They haven't seen Jesus yet, but they're still rejoicing because the sign of the star let them know that they were going to see him really, really soon. So they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And you know what? As I was thinking about their rejoicing, even though they had not yet experienced seeing Jesus, I think God wants you and I to be the same way about our future in heaven. You know, yeah, we don't, we're not there yet right, you know, but because of the great sign of Jonah, right, this is Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so, so Son of God will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, that great sign of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you know, because of that sign, you and I, we should be able to rejoice exceedingly, I like that, with great, with mega joy, because it's coming, it's coming, He's going to split that sky. It is coming one day. Amen. Praise God. Then they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Have you ever wondered if they were like just a e bit disappointed when they finally found Jesus? He didn't look like a king. His home definitely wasn't a castle. He had no scepter in his hands, commanded no armies, gave no speeches, passed no laws, no royal decrees came from his lips. In fact, at the time, Jesus was just learning how to talk and walk. I mean, to the outward eye, Jesus was nothing but a peasant child born in poverty. But to these wise men, he was a king. And listen, as far as they were concerned, Jesus possessed more royalty, you know, walking around in his diapers than Herod possessed strutting around in his royal robes. Understand, somehow these wise men saw beyond the present into the future, and so in deep faith they bowed and worshipped toddler Jesus. Now the word there for worship is a word that means to, to kiss toward and to intensely adore. And again, somehow they knew. They just knew who Jesus was and that he was a king. And I don't know, maybe it's because of the legacy left in that part of the country by part of the world by another wise man, another magi by the name of Daniel. You know, Maybe his legacy, maybe they, maybe they remembered the words that I read earlier that Daniel had written when he lived in that part of the world, talking about what Jesus would be. He was giving authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Bottom line is somehow they knew, somehow they knew that one day this toddler would rule the world, and these wealthy, powerful, influential men bowed down unashamedly before him. Now that is a crazy scene. I mean, think about it. Suppose this week, you know, a leader of a great nation in the world, say China, Russia, Great Britain, right? They come to America, and, and they load up in their caravan of black SUVs. they got to be black, and they got to be SUVs, right? You know, and all these SUVs are driving all the way through town. And, you know, and, and these SUVs, I mean, picture, here they go, man. Uh, the news is following. It's everywhere. People are lining the streets watching them, and, and they pull up to a housing, product, a housing project or to a, to a, um, a rundown trailer park, and, and there's a, a little boy, you know, in front of this trailer, you know, playing in a sandbox. And these powerful leaders, with their guards, with the things in their ears around them, right, making sure everything's cool, you know, these powerful leaders come down. And that little boy's in a sandbox, and these powerful leaders, I mean, they're catching it on TV. It's everywhere. It's gone viral. And these leaders fall on their face and bow down and worship that little boy in front of the trailer park or the housing project. Would that... Is that, would that be a crazy thing? You think that's going to happen? It happened once. It happened once. Crazy scene. I just love the contrast. You know, when these wise men met Herod, they didn't, even, they didn't feel the urge at all to bow down. But when they met Jesus, they fell on their faces, giving him the honor to do a king. I love it. What Herod craved and demanded, the Christ child received without asking and now we come to the last detail, the one for which these guys are most remembered. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and see, I understand, bringing gifts when meeting a very powerful person in that culture is a very important thing to do. And, and these gifts they brought were very expensive, and, and they represent a worthy tribute for a king. But there's more to them than initially meets your eye. They they brought Jesus gold, which is one of the rarest and most expensive metals. It represented the wealth and power of a king. Uh, they brought Jesus frankincense, which was used in the temple to, to worship God. And, and I have a bowl up here, and you're, you're welcome after service to pick some up. Uh, Bob Vertricus gave me some Um, frankincense he's had for 40 years in a paper bag um, from the Middle East. And uh, so I got a bowl of frankincense here. You know, it still has its smell after 40 years, and you can pick some of that up, but it was used in the temple to worship God. And and then they they brought him myrrh, which is kind of a perfume made from the leaves of a rose. It, it, It was used in beauty treatments, but when mixed with vinegar, it became an anesthetic. And after a person died, myrrh was used to anoint the body and prepare it for burial. Gold pointed to his majesty, for he's a king. And I think it also helped fund his his upcoming trip to Egypt. I mean, I don't think he had a 401k he could cash in, right? You know, um, frankincense pointed to his deity, for he's God. Myrrh pointed to his humanity, for he's destined to suffer and to die. Now, did the wise men understand the deeper meaning of these gifts? Uh, Probably not. But let there be no doubt about it, God arranged these gifts in such a way that these gifts would point to the reason why Jesus came and who Jesus was. He was God, he was king, he was sacrifice. And then Matthew wraps up this Christmas portrait with these words. When it's time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Okay, that's the story. So what are these guys teach us about worship. We saw stars that rose and we've come to worship him. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. You know, this week, I, <clears throat> I read and I reread and I read and I reread these 12 verses and intensely looking at this portrait, convinced, convinced. You know what? There's got to be some powerful truth in there about worship and Sometime Christmas was a present to me. You know, five truths jumped out this past Thursday. And I'm going to briefly talk about these truths as we wrap up. Number one, worship is about seeing. We saw his star as it rose. Understand, worship begins with seeing. And, and, you know, I I find it interesting that even though the star had to be visible in the sky, not everybody saw it, right? Right? Everybody saw it. Maybe they weren't paying attention to it. Maybe they weren't looking, but not everybody saw it. Worship begins with seeing. The psalmist writes that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You know, Saturday morning, <clears throat> the skies were doing some proclaiming. I don't know if you had a chance to see them. I did. You <clears throat> got a drink of water here. Saturday morning, I saw this sunrise. I mean, I got an iPhone. That's my best camera I got, right? So it's all I can give you. It's like, are you kidding me? Do you hear it proclaiming? The power, the creativity, the beauty, the artistry of our God, you know? And Isaiah writes this, look, uh, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these he who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. In other words, every one of those trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars are exactly where God wants them to be. Every one of them. They're not missing. God knows where they are. He put them right there. And check out this picture I found online of a starry night. Is that just, is that just breathtaking? Man, just lay on the ground, you look up. Man, I mean, when you, when you look at creation, you, you just see, you see God's power, you see His creativity, and you just stand in awe of Him. That He just spoke this stuff into existence just simply by the word of His mouth. He's a great God. He's a powerful God. Worship begins with seeing and seeing His creation. It also begins with, with seeing Jesus. He's on the mountains in Galilee, about to meet with his guys for the last time, and it says this. When they saw him, they worshiped him. See, when you see Jesus, when you see Jesus, right? When you see him, when you see him, when you see who he is, when you see what he did, man, you just have to worship him. Worship begins with seeing. I had a guy in first service, Don Gibson, said, hey, you know what? Not too long ago, I was in this room and I saw Jesus. and He changed my life. See, when you see him, worship begins with seeing. Next, worship involves seeking. We saw his star and we've come to worship him. See, tr- true worship, I mean, when you really see, it drives you to seek. You know, when I got up early Saturday morning and I got in my car, sh- shut the door, and I go, oh, I got to get out of my car. And I go, are you kidding me? I said, that is so beautiful. Again, you can't, you can't capture God's creation on a digital camera, you know, an iPhone, you know. And I, you know what I did? I said, this isn't good enough. I got in my car, and I said, I have to get to higher ground. And as quick as I could, I know where I got to go. I, I got to go to that hill above the CVS. So I fly, man. I probably broke the speed limit. I fly. I go around that little circle thing. I park my car. I get out, and I worship. I go, are you kidding me? See, when you see, you just got to get closer. When you see, you just got to know more. You got to draw closer to him. And I want to share a couple of encouraging verses of, about seeking. Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14. prophet writes, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. When you seek me with all your heart, I'll be found by you. You, you, you see, God's not playing hide and seek. He's not like, oh, oh you're, you're getting warmer, no, colder, colder. No. But there's just something about who God is and who we are that we will not find God to the degree that God wants us to find him unless we want him more than we want anything else. God says, if you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. You're going to get on top of that roundabout around CVS and you're going to see me. You're going to see my glory. You're going to see my power. And I love this verse. I just found this verse this week. It's been there all the time. I wouldn't just add it. But I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. <laughs> I like that. I wouldn't tell you to look for me if you couldn't find me. I want you to find me. I want you to know me. And Jesus said, seek and you will find. From the wise men, we learned that worship begins with seeing. And, 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 and seeing, really seeing, always leads to seek, and I got to get closer. I, 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 I need a better look. And third, worship is grounded in Scripture. Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And then they read off the scripture, the prophecy of Micah. Understand, when they were sidetracked in Jerusalem, they went to the word of God to get direction. Maple Grove scripture is essential to worship. Scripture is what helps you and I see God more clearly. Scripture it's what guides us as we seek Him. Get it? And I gotta tell you, over the years, over the years, scripture, I found that scripture doesn't just ground and isn't just foundational to my faith, but I found that the Bible, I have found that, that God's word it, it, it ignites my faith. That that God's word propels my faith. That, that God's word actually sustains my faith and makes me want to worship. The other day I was reading this passage. The other day, actually, it was this morning. Sorry. <laughs> I'm caught up in my Bible reading, so I, I get to do a freebie. Rather than read, make up, I'm actually caught up in my faith. here, So I've been in Isaiah, and I read this this morning. Listen to me. I've cared for you since you were born. Yes, I, cared, I carried you before you were born. I'll be your God throughout your lifetime. Until your hair is white with age. I mate you. And I'll care for you. I will carry you along and save you. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Isn't this God who breathes out stars and holds oceans has cared for me since, since before I was born? That, that he's going to be my God throughout my lifetime? As my hair gets whiter and whiter, I I convince. I to tell myself it's blind until I get a haircut. They put that black thing on. It's like it doesn't look blind in there. They need to put a gray one down there, right? You know, because as your hair gets gray and falls, I'm going to be your guide forever and ever, and I'm going to carry you, man. You, re, man. All I could do when I did that seriously was just to worship. Are you kidding me? You know what? And I didn't have a hymn book. I, I didn't have a guitar or a drum. I don't need those to worship. I just came to God's presence and I praise him for who he is, for what he's done, for carrying me, for loving me. Next worship is about submitting. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Bowing down, it's a, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of, rever- it's, a sign of rever- it's a sign of reverence. And, and bowing down is a Visible bowing down is a visible acknowledgement that the one that stands before you is so much greater than you are. These why men teach us that worship is made visible in our submission. God, you're in charge, not me. God, your will, not mine. God, your path, your straight path, your perfect path, not my crooked path. God, your purpose is not my agenda. And we see these guys submitting to God in the final brushstrokes of this portrait. When it's time to leave, they return to their own country by another route. Why the other route? I mean, they already had hotel reservations all set up on the route they had planned. Why would they go a different way? God told them to. Oh, okay, God, you're in charge. We'll go the other way. Here's the deal. Worship that does not result in submission is not really worship. Worship that does not result in submission. It's not really worship. Jesus said, quoting Isaiah in Matthew 7, he says, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are are so far from me. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, why? Why, 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 why are you bowing before me? Why are you calling me, Lord, Lord, you're in charge, you're in charge, if you're not going to do what I tell you? Worship that does not result in submission is not really worship. But on the other hand, see, every time we submit to God, it's an act of worship. And again, you don't need a hymn book or a guitar to do it. Anytime you submit to God, God tells you to forgive those who hurt you, you do that, you just worship God you just worshiped him every time you pray for your enemies you just worship god every time god tells you to reach out to the hurting and you do you just worship god it's an act of worship conversely you know if if i don't submit to god you know it, the picture is not of me bowing to god but of me turning my back on god and that's not something you do to a ruler and remember the scene, one of the greatest scenes of all time in cinema history, right? I mean, Maximus, he's finally in there. There's Commodus. Man, no one likes Commodus. You know, and, 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 and he, he turned his back on him. How dare you turn your back on me, slave? Slave, remove your helmet. What's your name? <laughs> My name is Maximus Desmus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legion, and loyal servant of the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And see, every time that I say, God tells me to do something, he may have been telling you to do something, you know you need to do it. You know what he's told you to do, and you're like, There's some crazy stuff happening in New York City. There's some crazy stuff happening to our police officers who are protecting us. They're being targeted and executed. You know, and I was just reading this morning, you know, that, that you know, when, when the mayor was speaking, it came up on the screen, and, and, and him and the police are not really doing well right now. Hopefully, they can mend their differences, but it said that they, the police officer, they turned her back on the screen It's a sign of Disrespect. It's so, like, man, you're not honoring us. We don't want to honor you. And, and you see, when I say, God, you do, I know you want me to do this, God. I'm not going to do it. I'm turning my back on God. Not a good thing. Finally, worship we see in these guys, it's about sacrificing. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, in order to worship Jesus, these guys make significant sacrifices. I mean, when they traveled across the desert in their caravan, it, it didn't have XM radio. It didn't have AC. <clears throat> it didn't have a DVD player right? It was a rough journey. And, and, and they brought expensive gifts. And they brought them with them, right? That means they thought ahead, right? I'm going to see a king. I'm coming into the presence of a king. They didn't show up, pull up their wallet and say, dang, we shouldn't have spent so much at the restaurant last night. Oh, here you go. No, they thought ahead, and You don't come into the presence of the king of kings and lord of lords and give them your scraps. Hey, we, we did bring you a go box. Is that good enough for you? No, these guys thought ahead. It was a sacrifice. See, worship always results in sacrifice. In fact, the very first use of the word worship in the Bible is in the context of sacrifice. You know where it is? It's Genesis chapter 22. You know what that chapter is about? It's about Abraham taking his son up the top of the mountain where he's getting ready to sacrifice him. And he says this, first use of the word worship in the entire Bible. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will what? We'll worship. What? Is there a band up there or something? (laughs) No, I'm going to sacrifice what's most important to me, and that is an act of worship. See, worship propels us to sacrifice. Sacrifice. And Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We offer our lives to God. You know, in these wise men, we, we see several three responses to Jesus, right, that day. And the wise men' response was worship, they, to see him, to seek him, to do whatever they can to be with him. Herod's response You know, this capable, crafty, cruel, cunning king was hostile to Jesus. He tried to kill him. The religious leaders, I mean, these guys knew exactly where Jesus was, born. But they were apathetic. I mean, if these guys travel a 1,000 miles, these guys wouldn't go down the block. Uh, They were the closest to Jesus, but they didn't even go to see Jesus. They never even showed up. So here's my question as we wrap up. What is your response to Jesus today? Is it worship? Is it worship? Remember, worship, worship begins with seeing Him, seeing Him, seeing His creation, seeing Jesus for who He is. Begins with seeing Him. Worship always involves seeking. Always involves seeking. Notice there's an ing, intentionally, right? It's not. It's not like, well, I saw Him once and I'm good. I saw them once and I'm good. No, we keep seeing. We keep seeking. And maybe what you need more than anything, you need to see him. You need to see his creation. Or maybe you need to seek him. If you haven't found him, maybe it's because you haven't sought him with all that you have. Because God wants you to find him. It's grounded and ignited by scripturing. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's a new word, but you know, scripturing. <laughs> scripturing. Being in the Word. You're going to worship. You're going to read something, and all you can do is just worship. Are you kidding me? God loves me that much. God did that for me. God doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. Are you kidding me? And worship is visibly expressed. It visibly expresses itself by submitting, by submitting. You know, you decide, again, I use forgiveness because people, we struggle with that, don't we, right? You know, we struggle with that. You know, you know forgiveness is an act of worship. Maybe that's what you're going to do today. You thought you were going to worship in song. No, you're going to worship in forgiving. You know, God, I've held this bitterness too long. And I know you tell me to let it go, and I just haven't. And I got all these excuses why I should hold on to it. But I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to forgive because you asked me to, because you forgave me. And in doing so, you will send up some sweet music to the ear of our Father in heaven. And and worship is willingly living, willingly living a life of sacrificing. Amen. Of course I'm going to give up. It's like, I mean, when we really worship, we really see Him and we seek Him, and we've been reading His Word and we're submitting to Him. Man, we'll be like, we'll be like that lady. She's like, hey, sacrificing. Yeah, I, I know this is, I know this perfume costs a year's pay, but but it, I, I'm going to pour it out. You know, I, I'm. It's just water. I, I'm going to pour it out. You know. It's just water, it'll dry. I'm going to pour it out on his feet. Yes, yeah, a year's wages, but it's for Jesus, it's worth it. If it's for Jesus, it's not really sacrificing because he always gives me back more than I could ever give him. Amen? So what's your response to Jesus' day? I hope it's the response of worship. And I want to show you a picture and ask a question as we wrap up. Let's see the picture of we three frogs of Orient R. Okay. Um, these are not kings, wise men, these are frogs. And, and, and here, here's a question. There's three frogs. Suppose the one on the right decides, "Hey, it's time to jump off the log." How many frogs are left? 3. Right? I said he decided to jump. Right? He didn't really jump. And see, just thinking in here, you're like, yeah, you know what? I need to see God more. I need to seek him. I need to be in the word more. I I need to submit to what he tells me. You know, I need to start sacrificing for him. You know, just thinking it, you're still in the log. And this morning, God is asking you and I to hop off the log and to bow before the one, to hop off the log, whatever God's asking you to do for your act of worship, to hop off the log and bow right now before the one who can give you life in this moment and who can give you life forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song and about worship. And Father God, we humbly come into your presence, God. You know us. You love us. We thank you so much for this portrait of worship. God, forgive us for so at times narrowly defining worship by guitars and hymn books, Lord. And Lord, what it's really about our entire lives being sold out for you. And and God, I I pray that right now, Lord, that we will just worship you, that we will just bow down before you, that we'll long to be in your presence like never before, that whatever log we're on in our walk with you, that we'll hop off of it. And that would we'll be blown away by who you are and the things that you do. God, there's no one like you, no one compares to you. In Jesus' name, amen.